Would you open your Bible with me, please, as we come to our study for this morning? We are turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I make no pretense that this series during the month of January is an exposition of the Scripture. It is not. But I think that what we're saying is based upon Scripture and is the elaboration of biblical principles about building the church. There was a man who dreamed of the house that he wanted to build. With the design of that house fixed in his mind, he bought the lumber and other materials and began his work. His friend saw his effort and asked if he might labor at his side. Certainly, he replied. And so they worked together. And it was not long before yet another friend, who had always wanted to build a home, asked if he could join them. Of course, he replied. For weeks, the three of them labored together side by side, each man constructing the house that he envisioned. So if you can imagine a split-level, ranch-style, antebellum mansion, you can see the dream home that became a nightmare because the three men working together did not share a common vision of what they were building. You see, building a local church that is a living building of believer priests can also result in a nightmarish experience if there is no common vision laid out as to what the church should look like. My aim in these Sunday mornings is to share with you my heart what I believe God would have our church look like as we grow together in the 90s. Now frankly, there is some risk in doing what I'm doing. Partly because of time constraints, although there are those who argue that I know no such constraints. But in a situation like this, one cannot say everything that might be said about every subject that comes up. And so there are loopholes that are left, and there are question marks that are maybe left in minds, and that can be a little dangerous. As I was driving home last week, I was thinking about the message. And uh, as I did so, I thought, you know, you may have given the congregation the impression that there's never a place for a designated gift by what you said. And so I thought this morning maybe I should uh, just clarify with you that that was not what I was saying. But rather I was saying that in that basic gift of the first fruits that we give, that monthly foundational gift that we give... I believe that that ought to be given to the total ministry that God calls us together to do. Uh, we have practiced that in our own family for years, but we also give designated gifts above and beyond that as God lays it on our hearts. For example, there are a couple of causes that our church budget does not address and we feel strongly about, and so we give some above and beyond giving toward those. And from time to time, there are special requests that come up in our church, and we give designated gifts in that direction. So I just wanted to balance that out a little bit this morning, uh, in case I had left some of you with that question mark in your mind about last week. But without articulating some kind of a common vision, 
The danger is that the church will accomplish nothing, or perhaps even worse, will accomplish the wrong thing, and thus will come under the judgment of Christ. Is that not what happened in part, at least, to the churches in Asia Minor, to whom the Lord said, Repent, or I'm going to remove your lampstand. You will lose your ministry. You will lose your witness. I think it's important that we see together a common vision of the kind of church that we're seeking to build here at Grace Church Roseville. Thus far, we've, we've said that we believe God wants this to be the kind of a church where the Word of God is faithfully taught with relevance to real life and where it is obeyed by all of us. We've said that we want to see this church be the kind of a church noted for loving acceptance of needy and hurting people, while at the same time pursuing holiness. We want ours to be the kind of a church where members allow for differences of opinion and conviction on disputed issues, where the scripture is not clear. We want this to be the kind of a church in the 90s that works to keep its basic ministry simple and uncomplicated, while at the same time meeting the essential needs of its members. And we said last week again that a church, we want this to be the kind of a church where everyone joyfully participates in the financial support of the total ministry. Now with those five items out of the way, I want today to move on quickly to number six. I believe as we look into the 90s that God wants us to be the kind of a church that seeks to provide options for involvement. The day for having just one set of possible involvements in a church is over. At least it's over in a larger, more sophisticated urban area. The church that will be effective in ministry in the next quarter of century is the one providing options for people. Now there is but one foundation. That foundation is laid for us here in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians where the Apostle says in verse 11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he has said in verse 10 that he had laid that foundation in proclaiming the gospel to them. But now he says there are others who are building on that foundation, and we are doing the same thing today. In Grace Church Roseville, we are building on a foundation that's already been laid, but what kind of a church are we going to build? We want to build the kind of a church that's going to minister effectively in the generation God has called us to be a part of. And to do that, I believe that we need to be the kind of a church that provides options for involvement. People today want the ability to choose. That is an expectation in our culture. We are the culture of cafeterias and buffets, of supermarkets and full-service institutions. I heard someone say recently that the church that makes it in the next 10 years will be the full-service church. Now what he had in mind is the point I'm trying to make this morning. It's the church that offers options to people so that they can choose what they want to be involved in. The day to say to people, well, we have this 
on Sunday morning and this on Sunday night and this on Wednesday night. You can take it or leave it. That day is over. Because most people will leave it rather than take it. Rather, in our culture today, we need to develop the kind of a church that offers an array of selections to people, if you please. All of them, hopefully, good. But saying, here is what our church is able to provide to you. Now you choose. And by the way, how can you be involved in our church? Here are those options also for you to select from. It goes both ways. Recently, I was in one of the large uh, department stores in our area. And I was amazed as I walked back one corridor of that department store to see on one side of the aisle a travel agency, on the other side an investment firm. In front of me was a dental office, and to another side was the optical service. All of that was just on the other side of electronics and home furnishings. You see, that's the direction of retail business in the 90s. It's the one-stop store where people have the option of doing there everything that they may want to do. Now, the church that's going to be on the cutting edge in the 90s is the one that works toward diversity in its ministry. One that gives interested people choices. Now, at the same time, the essential needs that everyone has must be simplified. Those two things seem to be contradictory, don't they? As we talk about more options, and yet trying to make the ministry simple. We talked last week about the essential needs of every believer. I don't think there's an exception among us. We all need these three things. We need worship. We need relationship, and we need ministry. But the challenge that we face in the simplicity of the needs is to provide options in each area. So that in worship, we provide options for people. In relationships, we provide options. In ministry, we provide options. That's the point I'm making. In worship, we need to provide options. Options, perhaps, of times. We do that now. We have a service at 9.30 and a service at 11. Perhaps there are other times that we need to be considering as we move into the 90s. Maybe a Saturday night worship or a Friday night worship or a midweek worship ought to be considered. Now, as I throw these things out... Please don't feel like that we're offering this next week. I am just saying these are things that can be considered. They may also be unconsidered just as fast. But the point is that we need to think through options. Options perhaps as to place of worship. Is this worship center as temporary as it's been intended to be? Is this the only place we can worship? I know of one church that offered its... uh, career men and women, at least some of them, the opportunity to worship completely away from the church campus in a cafeteria. They rented the cafeteria, began worshiping there, and hundreds of single men and women now meet there for worship every Sunday morning. They don't go to the church campus at all. They worship there together. 
in that cafeteria. In that neutral setting, they found an interesting opportunity to reach out to people who are turned off by the institutional church and who are rather intrigued by the opportunity to worship in a cafeteria. We need to offer options in style of worship. Traditional worship is very effective at meeting the needs of some people. Others need a different style of worship, a more contemporary kind of worship. There are some who find it very comfortable to come to church and sit and uh, to listen and to stand up and sing and sit down and maybe to laugh once in a while and to go out and they feel good about that. But there are others who say, well, I'd like to say amen. Someone said to me last Sunday, I said amen twice this morning, but not loud enough so anybody could hear me. You see, not enough of us know CPR to take care of all the problems that would arise if, if that would happen. We have some who, who are coming to grace, who come out of backgrounds where they have lifted their hands in worship before. And they say, we're afraid to do that, lest it may offend some people. I've said, hey, don't worry about it. If you feel like lifting your hands in worship, then lift your hands in worship. Would all of you just lift your hands right now? See, people who do that don't have weird muscles in their arms. We, we all have the same muscles and can do that. Now, just like an amen, lifting hands can be a show. It can be empty. But for some people, it's very meaningful to lift their hands. But in this kind of a setting, they find that uh, difficult to do. As a matter of fact, tonight, in our evening service, we're going to begin... Uh, trying to create a more contemporary kind of worship service where that sort of thing may not feel quite so abnormal. I hope that you'll come this evening. We're going to do this for a couple of Sunday nights. We have a break that we've planned in for something special and then a couple of more Sunday nights in February. And what we do on these Sunday nights may or may not affect what we do on Sunday morning. But I invite your participation and your comments about uh, the new, more contemporary style of worship that we're going to experiment with beginning this evening. My point is this, that if we're going to be on the cutting edge of ministry in the 90s, we need to be offering options in worship. And we need to be offering options in relationships. Now I suppose if there's any really strong point in our ministry now, it may be this area, because we have a lot of opportunities for people to develop relationships. We're talking about relationships in the sense of a, of a place or a partnership where there is genuineness, where there is transparency and mutual caring. Uh, we probably need to, to work on how do we simplify this area. Uh, so far we've been saying to, to almost everyone, well you need to be a part of a small church and you need to be a part of a flock. Now maybe the time is going to come, I say maybe the time is going to come, that we'll need to say to people, you should choose either a small church or a flock in order to simplify ministry in your life. And to try to accomplish then in both of those realms the best of both worlds. We need to provide options in relationships. We have a practical problem when it comes to small churches. 
<clears throat> that problem is space, especially during the prime hours of ministry on Sunday morning. Next fall, our children's ministry will continue to expand just by the birth of more babies in our church. And as that happens, more rooms are, are needed. Right now, we have some rooms where there are between 50 and 60 kids in Sunday school. That's too many. It's impossible to teach a Sunday school class like that. We have uh, some rooms where there are two grades meeting together, two classes meeting together in the same room with just a visible divider, but we can't continue doing that with children or we lose them. And so more rooms are needed for children's ministry. That means less room is going to be available for the traditional small church as we've established it. And so options for relationships, to some extent, may be forced upon us by the very fact of our circumstances. We need to offer options in ministry. Now, I'm thinking of ministry inside the walls where there are lots of options. In fact, uh, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we put together a booklet that outlined, oh, some 200 possibilities for ministry, basically within the structured program of the church, within its walls. But then you move outside of the walls, where most of us aren't geared to think, and the options multiply far beyond that. We need to encourage uh, more options of ministry outside the structured ministry of our church. We need to take our ministry beyond that which is already established and which we do on Sunday or on Wednesday. For example, we need to encourage ministry to special need groups or target groups. Did you know that 27 million people in the United States cannot read? Some of those people live right here in this city. Wouldn't it be interesting for a Christian or a group of believers or maybe a flock group to say, you know, we'd like to create a ministry to help illiterate people. Or perhaps there are others who would be interested in providing health care for those who are poor. I know of one church that has established a clinic staffed by its own doctors. <clears throat> and several hours <clears throat> a week they open that clinic to the poor community in which it exists and they offer free medical care and dental care to the residents of that community who cannot afford health care. What about uh, legal assistance? Again, there are churches that have lawyers that have banded together and they've opened a place in the inner city to provide free legal advice to those who are oppressed and cannot afford the kind of uh, excellent legal advice that most of us can get readily. Single parent families abound. Are there some who might see it as a ministry to create a big brother or big sister network for kids who have no father, in some cases no mother? And you see, doing all of these things that I've just mentioned with a view to preaching Christ to these people, make no mistake about it, we're not just doing this to meet social needs. The point is, that we do these things that we may call cultural key kinds of things. Ministries that open the door 
to the culture out there in the mainstream as it is so that we can enter into that culture and then after we've done that present Jesus Christ to them options in ministry abound the only thing that uh, is hindering us is our own lack of imagination and creativity it doesn't mean that we have to recreate the wheel in every case there are some ministries that are already established that might be suitable for some people's visions. For example, someone may say, well, I have a vision to work with uh, young teenagers who are with child and unmarried. Well, there's already a wonderful ministry in the Twin Cities called New Life Family Services that uh, you can plug into and minister with them. Or someone else says, I'm burdened about chemical abuse. And I would really like to learn how to counsel people who are in, involved in, in that terrible tragedy. Well, just in a few days, we are going to be associating with Midwest Challenge. They're going to be moving into Delwood North. And uh, they'll be available to train people in our church and will be involved in doing that. How to help people involved in chemical abuse. And we need to understand that it's not the church's job to create all of these ministries. Please, no one come to me and say, well, you know, I'm really burdened for working with people just getting out of prison. When is the church going to start something? Because if you come and say that to me, I'm going to say just as soon as you're ready to start. You see, it's not the church's responsibility to start all of these things. It's our responsibility as individuals or as groups as God would lead us together to envision what God might have us do for the kingdom's sake in our region. The church can certainly give its blessing. The church can help recruit other people if that's needed. The church can help perhaps get it organized. The church can't support it financially. But God can. What would God engender in your heart? Maybe it's within the walls. Maybe you're doing right now exactly what God has gifted and called you to do and working with a Awana or a children's ministry or ushering or whatever it may be. But maybe it's something more or something else that God is just starting now to give you a vision for. I want you to feel free to develop that vision. I want you to use your God-given imagination to be creative and innovative and just see what he might have you do. I would encourage you, if you are interested in, in doing something like this that we're talking about in terms of ministry, to read a book by Frank Tillepaw entitled Unleashing Your Potential, an exciting book that will help structure some of your thinking. It will answer some questions you may have. <clears throat> it will set you on the right tracks as you get started even in the early stages of his <clears throat> just dreaming. That's called Unleashing Your Potential by Frank Tillepaw. My point in this part of the message this morning is to say that, that uh, we need to develop the kind of ministry here that provides options for involvement. In worship, in relationship, in ministry, and those options are not just provided for us, they must in some cases be created by ourselves, but we as a church can encourage the mindset of creativity and innovation. 
we can learn to see ourselves not as a narrowly focused church that has one program, take it or leave it, but we can learn to see ourselves rather as, will you pardon the term, a supermarket church that allows for options and choices in involvement. If you go to the supermarket and you want green beans, you're going to have choices to make. Do you want the regular cut green beans or do you want French style? Do you want green beans or do you want green beans with red pepper pieces in them? If you want tuna fish, you've got to decide if you want white tuna or light tuna. If you want it in water, you want it in oil. If you want cereal, you're going to have to decide if you want sugar in it or you want it without sugar. Or you want oats or you want bran or do you want wheat or do you want corn? You see, we're into choices. Our whole culture is into choices, and we as a church, if we want to be effective the next 10 years, 20 years, must apply that to ministry. I believe that God in the next 10 years wants us to be the kind of church, number seven, which performs its functions and continually creates new forms for them. Now, I'm hesitant to talk about this because you're going to have to listen closely to what I'm saying. This is not easy to understand if it's your first pass at this kind of language. But I want you to notice the two key words in that statement. A church which performs its functions and continually creates new forms for them. Functions and forms. Now, we live with those all the time, but we don't often think about them in terms of ministry. Function is what we do as a church. It's what we must do if we're going to be a church. Function is what the New Testament says that we must do as a body of people if we are an ecclesia, a church, a called out people. Now we as a a body of leaders, as elders and staff, have talked about this. And we see that there are at least five functions that a body of people have to be doing if they want to call themselves a church. Else it's a Bible study, else it's a parachurch ministry, else it's an evangelistic ministry or something, but it's not a church. A church must be in the first place involved in worshiping together. It must come together corporately as a body of people to worship, and that includes the observance of the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. It involves praying together, worshiping together. That's one function. A second one is to proclaim the gospel. A church must do that if it's a church. It must proclaim the gospel to its community and to the whole world. There are times that that proclamation will be very confrontational, maybe event-oriented. There are times when it involves the building of relationships with people to earn the right to present the gospel in a trusting setting. I'm including under this also being salt and light in our community, in our culture. 
confronting injustice, confronting oppression. I'm including a lot under this heading, but the point is that if we're going to be a church, then we must proclaim the gospel. Number three, we must encourage relationships that provide for life-sharing and personal growth. A body of people, if it doesn't do that, is not going to function as a New Testament church. Because relationship is a part of it, it's a vital part of it. Number four, the function of a church is to teach and obey the Word of God. And number five, if it's a church, it must organize itself. The New Testament talks about two offices, elder and deacon. But the body of people must organize itself sufficiently so the direction, discipline, and function are achieved. Now, as we've looked at Acts and as we've looked at the epistles of the New Testament, we believe if you boil it all down, those are the five functions of a church. Wherever it is, whatever the culture may be, whatever the time setting of the church, the 300s, the 1500s, the 1900s, or the next century, those five functions are the essentials of a church. But the second key word is forms. The function is what we are to do. But form has to do with how we do our functions. The form has to do with how we do our worshiping, our proclamation of the gospel, our relationships, our teaching of the word, our organization. And frankly, as you look at the New Testament, you find very little to guide you in terms of forms. Why is that? Because forms need to change with the times, with the place, and with the culture. The functions do not change. But how those things are done had better change, or the church will become irrelevant. I would encourage you, uh, if you like to read, and many of you do, to get a hold of the book by Gene Getz entitled, Sharpening the Focus of the Church. It will challenge you along the line I'm talking about this morning. Gene Getz talks about three lenses in that book. They are the lenses of of Bible and history and culture. And he says that as we sharpen the focus of the church and what it should be doing and how it should be doing them, we need to get all three of those lenses into proper focus. We need to look at what we're doing through the lens of the Bible to make sure what we're doing is right. And to whatever degree the Bible describes how to do it, that we're doing it the way the Bible says to do it. We need to look at our ministry through the lens of history and learn from the past the right and the wrong, the good and the bad way of doing ministry. We need to get out the lens of culture and see if what we're doing can be focused better in light of the culture in which we're in. It's an interesting book. I've also read a chapter out of a book entitled Community of the King by Howard Snyder in which he says some helpful things along 
the line of what we're talking about. I hope that you'll listen as I read this. It's not easy to listen to somebody read. Uh, It's not going to be long, so hang in there. I quote, A church which intends to grow and serve the kingdom of God must be structured in harmony with the biblical understanding of the church. This is not to say that a church structured otherwise will not grow, for churches with the most diverse structures have obviously grown and survived. But a church not structured in harmony with biblical principles will never achieve the quality of growth and the authenticity of discipleship which God intends. And so he begins to lay out now in his chapter some of those uh, principles that he's talking about. Uh, He's going to use the term church structure, but interpret that as we're using it today, ministry form. He says, first, church structure or ministry form must be biblically valid. Although this principle should be obvious and fundamental, it's frequently violated. Structures are formed or spawned which are basically contrary to the Bible. They become unbiblical traditions and rigid institutions. We need to ask some hard and to some people shocking questions. Is the traditional Sunday school structure biblically defensible? By the way, I don't know that he's saying it's not, but he's asking the question. It's a good question to ask. Do believers really worship or encounter God in our church services? Is the Word of God really taught and heard? Do believers really speak the truth in love to one another or just say nice, meaningless things? Do our structures take seriously the gifts of the Spirit and the priesthood of believers? Secondly, he says, church structure or ministry forms must be culturally viable, must be compatible with the cultural forms of the society in which the church finds itself. And third, he says, church structure or ministry forms must be temporally flexible. They must be open to modification as changing circumstances warrant. Now, without the benefit of those specific words, nonetheless, our elders have been working through this matter of forms. And some of us have asked the question, yes, we are to teach the Word of God and We are to teach it, for example, to children. But are we doing it the best way? We need to ask ourselves, do we have Sunday school on Sunday morning and Awana on Wednesday night with the best results? You say, which one are you threatening? Neither one. I'm simply asking the question. We need to ask ourselves questions like that. How are we going to teach our children? And are we doing it in the best form possible for the 90s? We are to provide relationships. Is small church the best way to do it? What does a small church look like anyway? Well, we have a certain model for small church. Are there any other models for a small church? As a matter of fact, one of our small churches is thinking and praying and talking through another model right now. 
And uh, it involves, at least at this point in their thinking, not meeting at all on Sunday morning as a small church. But meeting on Sunday night. And three Sunday nights of the month, meeting in small groups in homes, and the fourth Sunday night, coming together as a larger group. What's wrong with that? Nothing. If it works. And if it doesn't, it needs to be adjusted. Do you understand the point I'm making? As we get into the 90s, we have to look at our functions. Those things that God has surely said, if we're going to be a church, we must do. And we must look at those functions to see how best to do them. And to create new forms for carrying out these functions. As the elders have talked about forms, we, we have come up with several guidelines that we think are important to help us form new things. In the first place, we think the forms of ministry that might be developed here at Grace Church should be culturally sensitive. In other words, they should grow out of the culture so long as the forms are not morally tainted by the culture. should be consistent with our culture. Secondly, we believe that our ministry forms should be considerate of the weaker brother. In other words, we need to be careful and aware that some believers have different convictions on certain lifestyle issues where the scripture is indefinite. We talked about that last week. And so as we create ministry forms, we want to be considerate of that truth so that a form of ministry we come up with won't cause other believers to stumble who are weaker in the faith. We think another guideline is that ministry forms should be flexible and temporal and not allowed to become permanent and fixed for that limits future possibilities. Number four, ministry forms must be prayerfully organized and set in motion, bathed in prayer. Ministry forms, number five, should be held accountable for doctrinal and moral purity by church leadership. In other words, church leadership won't have direct control, perhaps, over some forms that are developed. For example, let's say here's... Jim out here. Well, Jim is such a... Here's Hector. No, here's Zvin. Here's Zvin in our church. And Vin says he and Oli want to start a ministry out here somewhere. Uh, they have chosen an option to, to work with uh, this group of people in St. Paul, and they're burdened about that. And they say, what do we do, church? And we say, well, God bless you. We'll help you if you need help organizing it. We can't support you financially. We'll pray for you. We'll help you recruit people. But go do it. We want to release them to do it. Encourage them to do that. God bless Ven and Oli in that effort. <clears throat> and the only thing that we want to hold them accountable to is doctrinal purity we don't want them getting off base and starting a cult. And moral purity. And we have recently done some, done some discussion uh, as to what those two things mean to us as a church. I want to go into that this morning, though. Number six, a ministry form should be encouraged as fulfilling personal vision and burden. 
We want Zvin and Oli to have that burden for that group of people out there. And we want to encourage them to fulfill that personal vision that God has given to them saying, I want to do this for God. We want to say, charge, go to it. Number seven, we want ministry forums to be perceived as part of the life of the body. In other words, when Zvin and Oli go out there to do their work, we don't want them to feel like they're being chopped off from the body in that work. We want them to feel some connection to us because they're a part of our membership. So as they and maybe a couple of other, maybe Hector can get involved in that and a few others get involved out there, we, we want them to feel like that they're an extension of Grace Church. And so they want to come back to us and share testimonies with us, maybe reports to us. That's exciting. But we believe that those are important guidelines. Here's my point. In the 90s, let's be the kind of a church that examines the way it does things and which prayerfully seeks new forms for ministry that will enable us to do what God has called us to do with effectiveness. We want to avoid ruts. A rut is just a grave with both ends knocked out of it. We want to avoid that. You say, do we really need new forms? Listen, how should facts like these affect what we're doing? Number one, in 1957, 77% of moms were at home during the day. They had small kids. In 1989, 17% of moms were at home during the day if they have small kids. How do you think that affects forms of ministry? How do you think that affects the traditional vacation Bible school that met during the daytime in the summer when the kids were off of school and depended largely upon moms who were at home volunteering their time to help and to teach? Do you think that has any effect on it? A dramatic effect. Fact number two, how should this affect us? The fastest growing segment of our population is families headed by single mothers. Single parent families now are one out of every five single parent families. How does that affect what we do? Fact number three, more than half of the population of the United States will shortly be single adults. Should that have some impact on the way we plan for the future? The way we do our teaching? The way we do our relationships and so on? Of course it should. Get this one. Fact number four. By the year 2000, the majority of Americans will be over 50 years of age. I'll even be getting close to that. <laughs> then some. How does that affect what we do as a church? Fact number five. The trend of the last quarter of a century of people moving from the farm to the city is now being reversed. People are leaving the city and going back to the country so that we have today not just rural and urban, 
But we have what I heard someone call recently, Rurban. Does that affect the way that we, the times that we have ministry, how often we do things? Fact number six. Black, Latino, and Asian populations will outpace white populations in the 90s so that everyone in some major cities will be a minority. In some of the major cities of America, no longer will there be a majority of any race. Fact number seven, by the year 2000, one futurist by the name of Sam Dunn predicts, quote, the special status of the church in the eyes of the government will be all but eliminated, close quote, in the next 10 years. In other words, probably he is saying by the year 2000, churches will have no tax preference, will be paying taxes on our property. Probably there will be no chaplaincies in the armed services. Probably there will be no conscientious objection allowed for military service. Probably there will be no advocacy of religion in any public funded institution. Does that affect what we do? Fact number eight. The current of social change is toward individualism and privatization. That's a whole other subject and one that dramatically impacts ministry. But you see the point? If we're going to remain on the cutting edge of ministry, we've got to adapt new forms for our functions. Now what does this require of us if we're going to become this kind of a church? It's going to require qualities like trust, flexibility, sacrifice, innovation, patience, imagination, faith. Those kinds of qualities are going to be essential for all of us. There are some who are not going to like this kind of church. Because to them, values would include sameness, predictability, smallness, harmony, and status quo. And the fact is that as we become the kind of a church I believe God wants us to become, what we're looking at is change, diversity, conflict management, and bigness. Jesus Christ has called you and me, who name him as Lord, to be the church in the 90s, to proclaim his word to this generation. If we're going to do that, it is going to require the best from every one of us. Let's pray. Sing with me again this chorus. In our church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In our church, Lord, be glorified today. Sing it again. In our church.
Amen. Well, thank you for being a